This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Good song choice. <laughs> a little dead for you on this Tuesday afternoon. Speaking of deals, uh, CVS kicking off, CVS Health that is, kicking off one of the biggest corporate bond sales on record. It's all about its acquisition of Aetna. Let's talk about the numbers. Let's talk about how big. Let's talk about the reasons why. Molly Smith is all over this, corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us once again in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Hi. Hey, Carol. And you got, <laughs> you you just put out on the terminal, on the Bloomberg, uh, an update on this story, and this has to do with the amount. What's going on? Right. So we were thinking initially this this bond deal was going to be about $5 billion uh, larger than what it came in at. And after talking with some investors, you know, it seems like for CVS today, it was this this bond sale represents much more than just CVS. This is really a test for the entire IG market, which has gotten off to a horrible start this year. Let's talk about that, but let's just yeah. talk about the CVS deal. So it went right. from almost $45 billion that yeah. you guys were expecting, and now um, is this a done deal? We know that they're going to do $40 billion worth of debt? Correct, 40 So the reason why it's so important, though, like the, the pricing on this, you know, it really sets a tone for how IG is going to be going forward, and they wanted to make sure that this pricing was going to do well, not only in you know, attracting initial allocations, but also trading in the secondary markets once allocations are already decided. You're talking about CVS. They wanted it to go well, correct? correct. They wanted yes. there to be in investor interest in it. Right. And for the book runners, too, on the deal, you know, the banks that are going to be, you know, helping to underwrite deals for the rest of the year. Is that what, is it the financial guys who say, Let, let's pair this back a little bit. This will do better in the marketplace. Yeah, this is, you know, likely coming from syndicate desks, you know, who are advising on the deal. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be doing well looking at how this is doing in what we call gray market trading, which is, um, you know, unofficial trading before the allocations are decided. It's already doing better than what the price talk is uh, said to be at the launch. So let's take the, yeah. the, the bigger picture look. If you look at the investment grade debt market, how's mm -hmm. it been doing? Horrible start to the year. Yeah, plain and simple. No I mean, issuance. Yeah. No new issuance or performance. Or we've both? had lower issuance, which was expected because of the tax changes, which in general just make debt financing less attractive, and that's just been also met with less demand for IG as well. Um, seems that you know with the tax changes as well, especially the repatriation aspect of the bill, some of the biggest buyers of corporate debt, the companies of Apple and the like that have billions, hundreds of billions of dollars overseas, have not been as big of buyers of corporate debt. And that's really hurt IG spreads as well as, you know, foreign investors are not looking at the asset class as much either. Why aren't they buyers of the debt? Explain that. The corporations, you yeah. mean? Well, when you have all this company, come this money, sorry, coming back, um, I mean, it's kind of a, like, what do you do with, you know, all of your current investments? And that's a decision that these companies have been making. And uh, they've been, you know, shifting some of the money around, and which has mostly been in the front end of the curve pulling that money out now or just not buying as much as they used to. Because you would have thought with all this extra money that they might have been pumping more into the market, but they're not. Right. We think, mm. you know, it's most likely going to be for shareholder rewards, which has likely been the trend. Which Buybacks, is, dividends. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so when does um, CVS actually put this, uh, this uh, bond offering out? 
So likely going to price in the next couple of hours and uh, not expecting the pricing or the size to change from the current status at the launch. So so expecting to see that $40 billion print. Does it matter, Molly? We're talking with Molly Smith, corporate mm-hmm. finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our New York studio. Does it matter that they still haven't gotten regulators to sign off or they pretty much know this is going to go through? It seems like a done deal at this point. Uh, the regulatory, I mean, certainly that is a hurdle to pass, but it doesn't seem like as strong of one. There aren't as many, you know, overlaps and antitrust issues between um, a pharmacy benefits manager and a health insurance company in this right. case. It's really setting an entirely new precedent for the healthcare industry. Well, I was going to say, how do investors see this, right? I think about CVS and I think about the retail side of the business, but health is a huge side of it. Right. And luckily for CVS, investors don't see it as retail. This is um, really redefining healthcare here, combining the pharmacy benefits com- with the retail aspects, with the insurance aspects. This is totally uncharted territory for healthcare. It is going to be interesting to see what happens. Hey, talk to us about, because this is expected to be, what, the largest, third largest? Give mm-hmm. us give us some perspective. Right. So $40 billion would put us at the third largest corporate bond sale ever. We've only seen that number outdone by Verizon and AB InBev in the past couple years. And uh, whenever you see monster deals of this size, it's mostly always going to be for M&A purposes. So, um we were kind of wondering, you know, once the tax reform went through, would that maybe clear up some uh, uncertainty around the tax environment? Will people start putting forward those M&A deals that didn't go through last year? So who knows, maybe we could see some more of these bigger deals now that the tax environment is more stable. Speaking of environments, the environment of the Federal Reserve and a raising mm-hmm. right environment, what does that do for the investment grade debt market? Well, for CVS, at least, it gives you more incentive to want to get this deal done sooner rather than later. And from really any company that's thinking about issuing debt, as we're seeing, you know, yields climb, it's been a half a percentage point rise since the beginning of the year. That's, you know, maybe, you know, to just at face value, not a lot. But when you're talking, that's representing, you know, millions or billions of dollars in one tranche of a bond deal. That's a lot of money. How many different um, sections of this or parts of this uh, bond offering will we see? Nine. <laughs> it's Nine. a lot. Between fixed, floating rate notes. I mean, and when you're talking a $40 billion offering a jumbo sale like this, you really need to hit every part of the curve to satisfy, satisfy every investor out there. Is it equally allocated along the curve? It's a uh, No, it shifts out in different parts. Um, I mean, the I would think that the 30-year part especially is going to do especially well. You know, you've seen pensions and insurance companies really at a loss for not enough longer dated debt here. So you're going to see that part get snapped up real quick. Got it. Molly Smith, corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our New York studio. B.B. King. Um, Worry, worry, worry. Let's uh, talk a little bit about what's going on in terms of the Broadcom and Qualcomm deal, because investors may be worried whether or not it's going to happen. And certainly U.S. regulators are concerned about national security when it comes to this possible deal. David McLaughlin is Department of Justice reporter at Bloomberg News. David joining us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in the nation's capital. So, David, um, we've been following this story for some time. Uh, Where are we in terms of national security concerns by U.S. regulators? Well, so uh, t- so this week, Qualcomm said it was going to delay the uh, shareholder vote on mm-hmm. uh, Broadcom's uh, slate of nominees because 
this uh, panel that's led by the Treasury Department called uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States had uh, ordered that the vote be uh, delayed. What happened today, uh, which is uh, interesting, is that Qualcomm released a, a letter from the Treasury Department, but it's like a two- or three-page letter, sort of laying out some of the concerns um, that the uh, security panel has about this deal. And um, I've been covering these kind of deals for quite some time. I've never seen one of these letters released publicly, so it's very uh, interesting to see some of the thought process that goes into um, uh, foreign takeovers, especially when they involve uh, technology deals. Um, and so, what well, what, well, what specifically? Because that intrigues me. So, tell me yeah. a little bit about this letter. Like you said, they're not, you know, typically released to the public. What was it in going through it that really jumped out for you? Well, so what they say about Qualcomm essentially is that Qualcomm is an incredibly important uh, technology company for for the United States in that it's a like a leading innovator um, for wireless uh, for cellular technology. And so what the government is saying is that it's um, it creates products that are essential to the, you know, the telecommunications infrastructure of the country. And when it comes to like that kind of those kind of that kind of critical infrastructure, the government always gets a little nervous. Yeah. And then the other piece is that Qualcomm has a number of uh, contracts with the D- Department of Defense, uh, some of which are classified. Um, and it's also important to note that, like these are just this is kind of the, some of the public concerns that Treasury laid out. There, are, there are other concerns apparently referenced in the letter that are that are classified and that hmm. were not shared with the companies. And so, uh, there might be there is more to this than than just it's in the letter. It's interesting because I think about some deals in the past where companies, a U.S. company or a foreign company, tried to buy a U.S. entity, and it was you know regulators came in and it was blocked. But what's interesting, I think, about this one is that Broadcom. I'm, Excuse me, Qualcomm has actually kind of reached out to CFIUS, right, to do this review. Yeah, and so it is interesting, because um, this is a hostile deal. Typically, right. these these deals are, you know, both companies are um, go to CFIUS uh, or the, you know other regulators and and try to together, you know, they work together to try to get the deal done because it's in their, both their interests. In this case, um, I think Broadcom is basically saying like. Uh, Qualcomm went behind its back, or you know, they say secretly filed with the committee and laid out um, some of the risks of the deal, and you know that may have been a strategy mm-hmm. uh, to uh, frustrate uh, or yeah frustrate the the shareholder vote because uh, as we know Qualcomm has um, has been uh, turning Broadcom away. Um, so this is a, a, a pretty serious uh, development, uh, CFIUS involvement, because they are very, very powerful. Uh, they can tell the president to block a deal, and that's that's very rare, but it has happened. It's you know I'd love to kind of get a whiteboard and kind of draw this a little bit, right? Because of the relationships. First of all, okay. You have Broadcom's chief executive officer, right, Hawk Tan. Remember when he got together with President Trump in the White House last year? Yeah. He announced he was moving Broadcom's headquarters to the U.S. from Singapore. And then what was it like? A few days or a week later, he announced his plans to buy Qualcomm. So you've got kind of that going on and that chumminess, if you will, or seemingly chumminess between Broadcom and President Trump. And then you've got Cifius, and I'm looking at your, you know, the story here, 
that led by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has become more demanding under Trump, right? And being right. kind of more cautious and careful about, you know, U.S. companies and what, what gets into kind of foreign hands. Yeah. So there have been a number of deals that have um, fallen apart um, since Trump took office. Um, and so, so in one case, Trump blocked a deal. That was a, another semiconductor deal where a Chinese uh, investor, a Chinese backed fund was, was trying to buy uh, Lattice Semiconductor. Lattice is based in, uh, in Oregon. Um, and Trump blocked that. But there have been others that basically run into opposition at the CFIUS level and basically decide to walk away from their deals because they don't want to be basically branded a, a national security threat. And these aren't like household names uh, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, maybe the, the most prominent one was Jack Ma's and Financial mm -hmm. tried to buy MoneyGram, mm -hmm. um, the money transfer service. Uh, that was, uh, CFIUS had concerns about that and it fell apart. But but they what I guess what's interesting about them is many of them involve technology companies um, in, in some form or another, and it's clear that Cepheus has has concerns about uh, sales of those companies, as particularly to Chinese buyers. Um, and but we should say I mean the Obama administration uh, had some similar concerns, and right before they left office, uh, publicly released a report that said that China's uh, efforts to develop its domestic uh, semiconductor um, uh, technology mm -hmm. represented a threat to the United States. So I yeah. think that, I think what this Qualcomm deal shows is like just a reflection of, of some of those fears. Hey, to be to be fair, David, I mean, yeah. Germany, uh, I think Australia, other other countries, too, have been kind of watching when it comes to foreign investment uh, into their kind of domestic companies. So the U.S. is not alone in kind of having these concerns. Just got about 30 seconds left. Um, that's that's true. I mean, you know, um, and in the United States, uh, I think there is. There is concern about, I think, legitimate concern from um, places like the Pentagon um, about having to rely on foreign suppliers for for key inputs. Right. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, there's just concern that maybe it, it, the concern about China has gone too far. Right. It's not just like about steel for tanks, which is kind right. of an old <laughs> way of thinking, but it's more about high technology and what it means for kind of everything we do uh, in the country, uh, and, and certainly when it comes to defense. Hey, David, thank you so much. David McLaughlin, he is Demar Department of Justice reporter at Bloomberg News in our Washington studio. Let's talk a little bit about the markets. Love and affection for the markets right now. Let's see what our next guest has to say, especially when you get a new Fed chief. Phil Orlando is chief equity market strategist and head of client portfolio manager at Federated Investors based in New York, and we find him in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome back. Carol, thanks for having me back. We were talking before we got going. Uh, a new Fed chief. You've got a, a monetary policy here in the United States where we've started to see it creep yep. higher. Um, what do we historically see, though, when there's a new name at the Fed? So I've been observing this for, for years, decades, going back uh, to the beginning of the history of the Federal Reserve, which has been around for 100 years. Um, and my observation, anecdotally, was that when a new Fed chair comes in, uh, the market is typically uncomfortable. They don't know, is the new person going to be as qualified as the old person? Is there a chance of a policy error? And the market tends to suffer a 10 to 15% air pocket 
during that first six months. Which so when Alan Greenspan came yeah. in, Ben Bernanke, every one of them, and and uh, and, and then Vulcan. eventually it winds itself out by the end of that first year. So I brought, uh, I, I told what I thought I saw to my buddies over at Ned Davis. Uh, I love Ned Davis. Twelve years ago, and yeah. I said, "Look, this is what I think I see. Tell me I'm wrong." And they went in and they did the data and they came back and said, Phil, we, we've, we've proved it. That going back, I think they went back to Eugene Black in the 1930s and said the first year of every Fed chair, there is this outsized volatility, this 10 to 15 percent air pocket at some point during the first half of the year. And then the market gets comfortable and it recovers. And, and you know, it happened a little earlier this year uh, with, with, with Jay Powell, right. like literally right at the beginning of his term, but we had a 12% air pocket. It was actually Bloomberg Business Week did this great cover of, uh, you know, basically, how'd you like your first day at office? Because I think that's when the market started to come up. Yeah. It was following that jobs report, yeah. right? And then... Well, uh, it, it actually started falling, you know, before he actually got in the chair. Janet right. was still sort of wrapping up at that point. But uh, we all knew the transition was coming. All right. So you're not worried about this being no. the indicator of something more ominous to come for stocks. And I no. say ominous because, you know, people make money, too, when stocks go down, if you're if you're a bear in this market. But what about, let's layer on top of that, um, Phil, that we are in a rising rate environment. Yes. And typically, we start to see when that happens that we do tend to see an impact on the economy. We often go into a recession because we're kind of at this tricky juncture, right? Yes. We have growth. We're not really worried about inflation, but the Fed wants to make sure that they don't let it get out of control. So, so our bottom line is that that we, looking at exactly the situation you're referring to, do not see the risk of recession before late 2020, early 2021 at the earliest. Wow. Now, what's happening right now, uh, the economy is strengthening, inflation is grinding higher, the Fed is tightening policy, interest rates are moving up. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. Um, but the, the increase in treasury yields or the funds rate, does mm -hmm. not begin to create a problem for equity valuations until the yield is much higher. Uh, like historically, what? Yeah. well, 5% used to be the, the old rule of thumb. On the 10-year. Uh, on the 10-year. So the, 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 the transition uh, was a 5% treasury yield, a 20p on stocks. As treasury yields get above that 5% level, that higher yield on, on the risk-free rate begins to create a, a competitive situation in which money disintermediates out of stocks into bonds, right. and then stock multiples start to go down. So we're, we're sitting here with Treasury yields at, what, 2.8%, 2.9%. 287% economy's still doing great. The, the Fed should be tightening policy. Inflation should be moving up. Interest rates should be grinding higher. In that environment, stock multiples expand. What might we be missing? And I ask that because I spoke with Austin Goolsby, who was a chief sure. uh, part of the economic team under uh, President Obama. You know, and leading up to 2008, we also said hey, a lot of people, the majority were said, don't worry about it, everything's fine. We, we, we've seen this story before. We've heard that before. What might we be missing here? Well, we went to a recession call in either September or October of 2007. So we thought we saw things that were deteriorating more quickly than the average investor might have at that point. We don't see anything right now uh, that gives us pause for concern. Now, the top of our worry list was this policy and leadership transition at the Fed, okay? Mm -hmm. And it looks like we're going to get through that problem. The, the, one, the one wild card that, that, frankly, we have no control over is the Mueller investigation. 
I mean, what 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 does Bob Mueller put out? Is there some smoking gun that that we don't see right now? Does does everything change? You know, the moment he issues that report, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but what's sh- the worst case scenario that you think investors have to brace for? Well, the the fact that 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 the Trump administration and Congress, uh, you know, that that there was collusion and and this thing is a, a house of cards and it comes down, but. Based upon what we've seen, what we've read, what we've heard, that doesn't appear to be the case. Mm-hmm. So if that's if that's right, and again, I don't know that it's right, but if right. it's right, then we've got to stick to fundamentals, which are the economy is grinding along at a 3% pace, give or take. The Fed is tightening policy. Inflation's grinding higher. Interest rates are moving up. Corporate earnings, you know, we just had a, a phenomenal four-quarter period. Yeah. That's an environment where, where stocks work higher. You're not talking at all about the trade worries, which have kind of rattled the markets a little bit on and off, depending on the news out of Washington. Tr- trade's a big deal. And and this this has gotten everyone sort of off their off their centering point. Uh, and I was looking at this today, that, that our most recent trade number, and I think it was the December trade data, we had a $50 billion monthly deficit, which was the worst monthly trade deficit in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm Trump, oh, and, and parenthetically, that number's up 20% just in the last four months. From from last August, I think we had about a forty-four billion dollar deficit. So right. if I'm Trump and I've based fifty-three point one billion was the latest. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and the next number, the the January estimate is like fifty-five billion. All right, so the number is going to get progressively worse. So if I'm Trump and I'm looking at that, I'm saying this is a disaster. I've got to do something to change that. So what's his what's his deal? His deal is I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna rattle some sabers, get people uncomfortable, and then come back and negotiate a reasonable NAFTA trade deal. The art of the deal. <laughs> Phil Orlando, chief equity market strategist and head of client portfolio manager at Federated Investors, right here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. This is Bloomberg Radio. When the money goes, when the honey stay, when the great skies we play sunny day. Ah, uh, where does the money go when it comes to Uber? Uh, if you're worried about companies spending on CapEx, Uber isn't. It's spending billions in the past decade as it builds up its share. Eric Newcomer, Newcomer is our startup reporter at Bloomberg News. Eric joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. So Uber, uh, so Uber. Eric, let's put some some numbers on yep. Uber spending and over what ta- yep. time frame. Talk to us a little bit about it. So since its founding, you know, um, Uber has burned through about ten point seven billion dollars. So, you know, years and years of uh, money spent on driver subsidies, sort of software engineers, insurance costs for drivers, legal fees, you know, everything in autonomous vehicles were certainly significant. And um, so that that sort of puts it in a place unlike any other company that we could find and certainly, you know, unlike any other company in the early days of its sort of founding. And even going back to like, I think the tech uh, run up, you know, 1998, 99 into 2000. We didn't see this. Right. I mean, people love to talk about Amazon, which when it w- it was public during the dot-com mm-hmm. boom, and at its worst point, it lost $1.4 billion. That's $2 billion adjusted for inflation. Uber's worst net income that we're aware of was 2017, 
which was a $4.5 billion loss. Wow. So it just doesn't compare even when you adjust for inflation. Well, you know, okay, so you, if you were sitting down with Uber, they would probably argue, well, you know, we're building up the company. Right. And, and we've ramped up tremendously. You look at the growth rates, right, in revenues, it's pretty tremendous. Exactly. So, you know, the argument is that sort of year over year, you look at growth on net revenue, it's 90% growth. Um, Q4 over Q4, it's about 60%. That's that's better growth. And we looked at a lot of companies, uh, you know, like Google, Facebook, even Delta, with similar valuations to what Uber's valued at now, about $54 billion. Mm-hmm. And we found that, you know, while all those companies were profitable and many had uh, sort of larger revenues than Uber, in a lot of cases, the uh, basket of companies, you know, the growth was slower. So that's that's sort of the trade-off. You know, you're getting this historically money losing company but um, it's you know use that to sort of grow globally Eric in your story that you did with Ian King you guys you know you do talk about um, the number that Uber often cites gross bookings or the amount riders pay for the service right and it's about 37 billion dollars last year that sounds pretty impressive but a lot of that doesn't go back to Uber right it goes to the drivers I mean every time I get into Uber I'm like I ask the driver do you like doing it do you make good money like what percentage do you get to keep because <laughs> I'm always curious right. about this model. Well, one of the crazy things uh, about the timing of this story is, we don't mention this, but there's a sort of debate in Uber world right now about a paper out of MIT that initially claimed that Uber drivers made way below minimum wage. And people Mm. have been going back and forth on what the actual number is. But, you know, we have sort of these two narratives at once. One, Uber doesn't make much money or, in fact, loses billions of dollars. And two... Uber's drivers, you know, don't feel like they're being sort of well compensated for their work. And so that's a sort Mm. of hard uh, combination uh, for them. Yeah. Two stories. Which one's true? (laughs) Got to figure it out. (laughs) Or they can both be true, you know. (laughs) Well, as as that debate goes, you're right. They both can be true. As that debate goes on, and I think as we all kind of take a look at Uber, because, you know, we always talk about the Uberization of of the world. People are really fascinated by what Uber's doing and how it's disrupted how you get a car. And investors have been willing to give this company, despite all their spending, despite losing money, they continue to channel money their way. Right. Uh, You know, I was joking on Twitter, it's Uber, but for deploying capital in a low interest rate environment. You know, I mean, there's (laughs) a lot of free capital. It's a very Bloomberg joke, I realize. But uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, easy easy access to money. I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia invested $3.5 billion in Uber and then even more through uh, SoftBank's Vision Fund. So there's this global capital looking for sort of long-term returns, and there's this belief that ride-sharing is going to transform transportation, and that today Uber has less than 1% of uh, trips, you know, or, Mm. you know, miles traveled in the United States, and so if it even, you know, went to something like 10%, that would be a huge growth opportunity. So you can see sort of where uh, the vision sort of just swamps any concern about today's margins. Right, and they're going to other areas, whether it's, you know, pooling riders, Uber Eats, Uber Health, I feel like, you know, so they're looking for different revenue streams. They are, right, we're all expecting they're going to go public. What do we know, though, about value, you know, valuations with this company? And, and since they don't have earnings, how do we define, you know, right. define their value? Just got about 30 seconds here. So uh, the valuation to use and that we rely on is $54 billion, which is the blend 
of the SoftBank deal. SoftBank invested $1.25 billion directly at a $69 billion valuation and then bought a ton of secondary shares at about 48. And so you combine those in the relative amounts, you get to 54 billion. Mm. That's how we get a price. Unbelievable. Great story. I wish I could spend money like that. I mean, you know, (laughs) still have investors giving me more money. Um, Eric Newcomer, thank you so much. Follows Uber, follows the world of startups for us here at Bloomberg News. He is startup reporter at Bloomberg and joining us in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.